welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Near Memo with David, Mike, and me. And we are back for episode 123, if you can believe it. Um, Today, after a long week, we will be talking about uh, ChatGPT versus Google in a Pepsi Challenge style taste test, search test, uh, content pruning, and what the rules around that are and when you should and when you shouldn't, and um, whether people actually read reviews versus just looking at star ratings. And so um, I, how's everybody doing today? Feeling good? Doing great. <laughs> yeah. Tap, tap of the world. Okay. Um, so I'm up first with uh, a, this was something I wrote about on Friday of last week. It was pretty interesting. A, a company called ClickPop did what amounts to a Pepsi challenge style blind uh, kind of search test where users um, input queries and then had a list of URLs to choose from in a column, uh, column A and column B, and then they selected which one they preferred. And one column was generated by ChatGPT and the other one was generated by Google and the columns were switched up and randomized. So people, you know, couldn't tell which was which. And the interesting thing was, this is a pretty small sample. I think they, they had only about uh, 750 users and only about 1600 or 1700 search queries. But uh, nonetheless, ChatGPT won uh, almost by two to one over Google, which I thought was really fascinating. And Bing had done something like that years and years and years ago with a similar kind of uh, similar kind of test. The difference with the Bing test was that they actually showed you a SERP versus just a list of URLs, which was the uh, ClickPop test. But nonetheless, Bing, Bing also won two to one. And so this this to me raises questions about um, Google, you know, Google usage being a function of Google's brand and familiarity versus actual search quality, which has been a you know, question that has been persistent over the last couple of years about about the Google SERP. Uh, I just so found I, it kind of interesting. Question for you. So we've seen in our research at Near Media just how much Google can control user behavior by inserting various elements into the search results. LSAs, we saw that really affect user behaviors versus when they weren't there. We saw PACs affect user behaviors versus when they weren't there. I mean, it sounds like this test is only judging the quality of the links of basically the 10 blue links, not the other elements that might be in a search result. And we know that. Right. It's not, a, you don't get to see a SERP. You're not seeing anything formatted. You're just seeing a list of URLs, which is a little bit problematic. The Bing test, which actually so showed you a SERP was better, uh, I think, in terms of kind of evaluating the relative quality. So you're just quickly I mean, looking at a yeah, it's possible if they're only showing URLs that ChatGPT is just showing better known brands than Google by default, and people are like, right. oh, I recognize so, these so, sites. So. Right, and I think, there's, I think there's definitely some of that going on, um, but that could also be a function of trust. You know, these, these recognized sites are more trusted, and thus the quality of these results is going to be better. Um, I, did, I did a number of searches on my own pretty informally, and I had a kind of similar outcome where I was choosing the ChatGPT results more frequently than the Google results, but it's not a truly, it's not, it's not a great design, but it's, but it's directionally interesting. And um, I think it speaks to just the power of the Google brand and the inertia around the Google brand and the Google SERP. 
um, and which which is something that um, the Neva people said when they shut down Neva. They said, and we've written about this a couple of times, that it was harder to get somebody to come to Neva and try it out than it was to get a Neva user to convert to to a paid subscription, which I thought was pretty interesting, but believable. User behaviors are very habitual and behavior is very habitual. People don't change easily. uh, Well, and this is is one of the questions in the upcoming Google uh, antitrust case that uh, was in the Wednesday newsletter where, um, you know, the, the last week the court, the federal court judge narrowed the causes of action that the Department of Justice and state attorneys general will be able to, tr- to try Google on essentially. Um, a bunch of stuff got thrown out, including self-preferencing. And what remains is the default search placements in Android and also the Apple Safari deal and the Firefox deal. And Google's argument is going to be, and this starts on September 12th is the trial, uh, Google's argument is going to be the competition is just a click away. There are no real barriers to switching. People have lots of choice and they can freely exercise that choice. And so our users are preferring to use us. There's no no compulsion here. There's no uh, f- no coercion of any kind. And it's and it's really going to be a question about like how much do you believe that inertia is a powerful force in this market versus people are making an affirmative choice. And that'll be the sort of thrust of the of the argument. And I think inertia is a very very powerful powerful force. And I see it myself in my own behavior. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think inertia is definitely a powerful force, but I don't think that this particular study is really the best. It's not rigorous. Uh, implementation of a taste test. I mean, you know, there's so many variables in terms of the type of query, right? How many, how many of those 1600 queries were informational versus commercial versus transactional? Not, not categorized, um, not categorized. Right, exactly. And I mean, honestly, like when I do a commercial search these days, I think the Google shopping results are fantastic. Um, and we do a local, when you do a local search, the local results are generally considerably better than the sort of organic directories that show up. So, um, I just think it's, it, it's a very narrow study and, and asking anybody to, to judge the quote unquote quality of the results based on a list of URLs just seems like a very flawed methodology to me. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, as I said, I, the Bing, the Bing study was better and it showed similar results, but I don't remember the particulars of that other than they, they showed two side by side, um, you know, unbranded search results pages, but it was just an interesting, you know, interesting fodder for discussion on this, on this topic. You know, what, what will it take to unseat Google? Is there anything at all that can disrupt Google's kind of lock on the search market. That's a kind of rhetorical question at the moment, but it's it's pretty, you know, the, the evidence is pretty com- convincing that not much is going to disrupt them. So, all right. Well, let's move on to uh, the CNET content pruning discussion slash debate. So, David, what was that about? Yes. So, CNET was, quote, unquote, air quotes, busted by Gizmodo this week for uh, pruning a bunch of uh, what they categorized as old content. Um, And the search liaison, we won't make this an ad hominem uh, section of the podcast here, but the search liaison for Google uh, came out and said, you know, hey, you shouldn't do this. Like the, the, uh, you shouldn't prune your content. The notion that Google doesn't like old content is just wrong. Like you should do helpful content instead. And here's a link to our you know, developer guidelines around helpful content. Um, so 
if you read that advice in a really narrow framing, you know, there's nothing inaccurate about it. But I think that the takeaway from the content is intended to be don't prune content, uh, which is a piece of very bad SEO advice, as Lily Ray from Amsif Digital actually commented in the Gizmodo article. She was a little more circumspect than I would be, than I am being, uh, and saying, you know, in, not, in, in every case, this may not be, you know, the best, the best path to go down. But, um, but anyhow, the great quote, I mean, it sounds like CNET is, is, has a really good SEO team, frankly. Um, the quote from their representative, Taylor Canada, is removing content from our site is not a decision we take lightly. Our teams analyze many data points to determine whether there are pages on CNET that are not currently serving a meaningful audience. This is an industry-wide best practice for large sites like ours, parenthetically small sites too, that are driven by SEO traffic. In an ideal world, we'd leave all of our content on our site in perpetuity. Unfortunately, we are penalized by the modern internet for leaving all previously published content live on our site. This reflects a very good understanding of how Google works, particularly on a large site like CNET, where crawl budget is, is, is a real thing. Um, and certainly domain equity and how you distribute your domain equity is a real thing. So I think the, uh, again, the search liaisons comment that uh, deleting old content is a bad idea, read narrowly, totally fine with it. But the takeaway that you shouldn't delete content that's not performing well is a very bad idea. <laughs> And you absolutely should do this, particularly uh, if Google Search Console and Google Analytics are showing very low engagement with content. At that point, it might still be helpful, but it's helpful to such a small percentage of users, you're better off either consolidating that content into a, another page on the site that's talking about a similar theme uh, or just getting rid of it altogether. So, And I think I read a comment from them that indicated that they, they were looking at how helpful content was for one of the examples I gave of unhelpful content was AOL pricing tiers from 1996 as a typically unhelpful content that they were pruning. So I think they have, they're very laser focused on this. To some extent, it's, there's a certain tragedy in it from a historical point of view. I mean, one of the reasons I had never edited my article, even if I offended somebody was I felt like this was an important record of the history of what we saw when we saw it. And I think there's something to be said for that, even if it doesn't get traffic, it's there, you know, uh, maybe, right? But it's still, it, it, I, they're right. I mean, if they're going to get better results and they have to do what they have to do and they're doing it. That's right. Kevin, in, I Kevin, mean, Google, into Google created this problem, right? Like Google yes. doesn't have to treat domain equity the way that they do and treat crawl budgets the way that they do. So um, I think, you know, there, there is a bit of a self-serving problem. Uh, uh, rationale behind Google not wanting publishers to delete content is then all of their AI has fewer artifact, artifacts right. to train itself on. So, yeah, yeah. which which even if it's copyrighted, though, Google thinks they should be able to use it to train their AI. This is I speak of hypocrisy. There's a huge one. Got to opt well, out they, of it. And they right. They want opt out rules rather than opt in. But um, robots TXT. Well, so just real quickly for the practitioners at home. Uh, what would your advice be? Kevin Indig talks a lot about updating content. So what's the yeah, difference between, sure. you know, what, what, what's the consideration around updating something versus pruning it? Well, so updating, I, you should absolutely update out-of-date content that is still receiving a meaningful number of visits from search uh, or visits from anywhere. I mean, it could be maybe you have a, I don't even know, a really popular newsletter that you link to a piece of content regularly and people still visit it. 
um, that's something that you might want to update if it's if it's no longer accurate based on a change in circumstances. Um, but if content literally is not being seen by anyone, um, and it, but it's still getting linked to in your site architecture, and Google is still spending time, you can look at your log files to detect that Google is still coming around and hitting that content. That is a wasted opportunity that is much better served with a piece of content that is engaging to users and also is better placed in your site architecture to maximize its performance. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you for the helpful, practical, tactical advice. Um, so Mike, uh, your topic today is about the distinction between the reliance on ratings and reviews and the actual reading of reviews that we've observed in user behavior and that you've anecdotally seen in other contexts. So what, right. what's the, uh, well, story there. Well, the, the bigger story is that Near Media is now doing consumer behavior research for large multi-location chains or multi-location operations. Entities of some sort. Entities of some sort. And in the first one, we noticed this behavior, but didn't, in one of our research projects, we noticed behavior, but didn't track it. And in another research project, we decided to track it. And inevitably, 60 to 70% of the Consumers note how important reviews are to them in making a decision. This is unprompted, uh, given this, given the tasks we give them. Um, and they make decisions. They choose providers or lawyers or doctors, whatever, based on, you know, their inclination to, to appreciate reviews and ratings. So there's that, which is 60 to 70% of users express this need and want to see reviews and ratings. But what we also see, and this is was sort of interesting to me, even in high consideration categories or things that I would think of as critically important to a human being, not very YMYL. many people. What's that? They're, YMYL. They're definitely YMYL, your money, your life yes. categories. Yes, correct. Uh, people don't act only slightly more than 20, about 25% or so, or you know, a third of the people who actually look at reviews and ratings only a third of them actually read the reviews. And I just find that fascinating. Um, obviously, there's the implications. This is something are, are several fold. One is for the, I think at the highest level, for the FTC. They, uh, they in their rules and guidelines, allow incentives uh, as long as the incentives are clearly stated in the text of the review. So, so, so for example, be entered, write a review and be entered to win something in a sweepstakes. Exactly. So those types of incentives are totally legal if it is clear in the review that this is what goes on. Well, if people don't read the reviews, what difference does it make if it bumped the you know volume of reviews up and I think probably the positive star rating of the reviews were bumped up as a result, then people are just reading the ratings. I think that it speaks to why the FTC should just ban incentives altogether, uh, both in the guidelines and in the rules. From a practical point of view to from the business point of view, it means it doesn't really matter if you get a review or if you just get a rating, or it really means that volume is more important, high quality volume is more important than the content of the reviews. Now we do know that reviews are used for Google by Google to, you know, understand the business and understand the entities. So there is value in getting the content, but people don't read it so 
you know, from a strictly interactive point of view, it, it seems, you know, secondary to most consumers. And I was just sort of you know, a big believer in reviews. Obviously, I spent a lot of my life looking at reviews. I was just sort of shocked by the sort of, oh, reviews are really important to me. And then they would go and click on somebody and never read them. So it just was interesting behavior to observe. And well, I, you you said you said sixty percent of people are explicitly mentioning reviews, but I think the number of the influence of reviews is much more, much more significant. It's much higher than that. If you have to isolate a single, putting aside rankings themselves, if you have to isolate a single variable that influences decision making, it's got to be reviews. Even if not stated, I agree. I think that reviews, ratings, and quantity reviews uh, influence people. So these are people who explicitly mentioned it, which we, like you said, is probably much lower than the actual number. Yeah. And I, I, th I see it, um, largely similarly, but maybe not quite as strongly as you, um, there is the, the possibility that the methodology is prompting a speedier, uh, path of a search journey than might be true in real life. I don't think that that's explains a hundred percent of this, uh, finding, but it could explain some of it. The other piece is I actually see the the value of reviews. For instance, we we found that only nine in our recent study, only nine percent of clicks went to naked GBP listings without reviews or ratings. Um, so in some in some sense, reviews are almost more of a disqualifier if you don't have them. You're not you're not in the consideration set if you don't have any reviews right. um, or ratings. But that it once you do have them, that there's they're pretty influential in terms of obviously the, as you said, the volume of reviews and the quality of your rating, but even the text of the reviews is going to help you rank better. There is a significant percentage of people. We're not saying nobody reads reviews. There is a significant percentage of people that is going into, you know, deeper down the listing or deeper on a directory website to understand what people are saying. Um, in particular, we see a lot of people actually filtering by show me the worst reviews to see what is bad about an experience, even if it's rated 4.7 stars or something like that. So, And I did I see some searchers also uh, qualifying best be, uh, practitioner in this area uh, looking for a higher star. And that's the other thing is that it struck me that the ratings were more significant than the quantity of reviews, that they, they just yeah. that they, they wanted very high star ratings and it didn't matter if it was five or 50 to a number of people. Some people looked at volume, but not as many. So it's just, it's behavior that I think is interesting and that isn't considered by our government in writing their regulations. So I think if there's no review text though, if there were only stars and no review text, it would, it would be less convincing, less compelling to people. I mean, that's just my, my kind of speculative yeah, there's instinct. probably an inherent expectation that there's something behind these ratings even if people aren't taking the time to right. Pe people yeah. people want to see some text they they want to see that that these are the 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 text lends authenticity and credibility to the star rating right there's these are real people who have written these reviews okay i can see that and i'm going to look at the aggregate rating and i'm going to do some spot checking at the you know the worst review the most recent review maybe some of that kind of behavior and, but I don't have time, certainly, to go through all these reviews. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a serious challenge to people, is that there's just too much in many cases for them to, to try and wade through. True, but rating has become a proxy for quality. 
in, in so many ways. And that, you know, just a, a mnemonic, it's like a quick way to move on and make some other decision. It'll be interesting to me to see if Apple's tactic of uh, no text, but different areas of the business being rated. Yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Well, and they have, and they, they were going to use uh, location awareness, your presence at that location historically, some, you know, you visited there and they could confirm that as a way to filter out fraud or, you know, illegitimate reviews. Interestingly, Google, because they have so little access to iPhone data, filters iPhone reviews, even fake ones, less than they filter Android reviews. So simply, <laughs> you know, uh, which... <laughs> Good tactic for all of our Black Hat listeners. All the Black Hat listeners, yes. Set up a big network of iPhones and hide the address and use a VPN and have at it. Here's the URL where you can buy a bunch of fake iPhone reviews for Google. (laughs) Well, I was was just... I do have that URL if you're interested. You can email. Yeah, sure. I was just in uh, Las Vegas. That is a... uh, Comment made by Mike Blumenthal personally and does not reflect. Yeah, not reflect <laughs> any. Uh, it, right, does, it doesn't reflect mine either, but I do happen to have the URL. Just saying, you know, it's like, hey, well, you can you just you can just do things. a you can just do a freaking search on Google and get URLs and you know the top five results <laughs> by five star reviews on Google. I, I was five just star in, reviews on Google created on iPhone so they don't get filtered. That's yeah, the, yeah. that's that's the a long tail search. <laughs> Um, I was just in Las Vegas for a conference, first one I've been to in a long time. Uh, you I was lucky presenting. fellow. No, no, it was 110 degrees. I wasn't so lucky. But I was presenting there. Uh, it was the Milestone Engage conference. And um, I presented on S- SGE and the sort of state of search and so on and so forth in, in, the, in the hospitality and the banking industry. Anyway, um, I was a couple of friends came in for one night to to hang out and we were trying to find restaurants and you'd think, you know, that should be really straightforward and easy, but it was very difficult because the, you know, without going into too much detail, uh, one of the problems was the, the sort of uniformly high reviews on a lot of restaurants. It was just visually on a mobile phone, hard to penetrate this kind of list of positive reviews where everything sort of looked the same and there were, you know, there were pictures, but it was, it was hard to make a decision. And, it, and, and, you know, that sort of prompted a conversation, which is sort of off topic a little bit about the burden now of making decisions, even for simple things like restaurants, because there's just too much information available. So, so I have one question about this. Were you happy with dinner at the end of the night? Well, so, in fact, we abandoned Google. We totally abandoned Google and just kind of went down. You know, we were in Caesar's Palace where the conference was taking place. And we just w- went through the, the mall there, the forum shops, and oh. looked at menus and found a place that looked pretty good. And the meal was, in wow. fact, good. Wow. Old school. That is, yeah. high, that is a high stakes bet you placed, Greg. But it, but it worked. Well. It worked. And better than walking outside and doing that test. No, right? no, not at not a, not in a hundred hundred and ten degrees. <laughs> but it, it was just it was just illustrative of something to me that like there's all this information online. It should be relatively simple to access and use it and use it to make decisions. And yet it was a source of frustration, and I had to revert to this very, you know, traditional pre-internet method. And it, you know, it was fine. Hmm. But anyway. Okay, anything else to add before we sign off for the week? No. 
Okay. Sorry that you had to be in Our, Vegas for as long as you did. <laughs> it, 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 I'll tell you, it was it was a really interesting experience, and it really convinced me that I don't need to go to Las Vegas again. <laughs> but we'll see what happens. I decided um, that about twenty five years ago. It's the pimple on the ass of it capitalism. It just it is like every a time place. every time I go. Yeah. Well, it's Mike Blumenthal's view is not near me. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I think whatever you want to say about. Whatever you want to say about Las Vegas, it's an interesting place. Just interesting totally to interesting. observe. Interesting to observe the behavior that goes on there. That's right. um, okay, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. We will be back next week with more exciting adventures of the Near Memo. And have a good weekend, week, where and whenever you're listening. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.